1: For generations, the legend of moonshine has tickled the fancy of alcohol enthusiasts. Tales of distilling the powerful booze in the middle of the night. Deliveries turning into high-speed chases with the cops. And of course, the risk of blindness from consuming too much. So what is moonshine exactly? And how did it come to be here in Tennessee? That's coming up later this hour. But first... Out in Chester County last week, a pipeline that spans eight states burst, spewing out more than 200,000 gallons of crude oil. That marks the second largest oil spill in Tennessee history, and you may not even have known about it if it hadn't been for WPLN reporter Caroline Eggers. She joins me now. Hey, Caroline.
2: Hey, how's
1: it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So 200,000 gallons sure sounds like a lot to me, but help us understand the sheer volume of this spill
2: I would say I'm still trying to figure that out myself hmm. um, it is a hard figure to uh, picture but it was the state's second biggest crude oil spill ever so it <laughs> we know it's big
1: is there anything in comparison that we can that, that we can kind of compare it to nationally that we may have heard of
2: uh, depends how closely you follow oil spills. Um, the one that comes to mind was there's a big one uh, off the coast of California last year, and that one was about 120,000 gallons. Wow.
1: Okay. So tell us what happened exactly.
2: Um, so the Chester County Emergency Management told me that a contracted worker with a pipeline company was doing some routine mowing in the pipeline's right-of-way zone, hmm. and they... Um, with this mower, uh, struck the pipeline, and ruptured it.
1: How strong is that mower?
2: Uh, <laughs> that has been a popular question. It uh, has, you know, uh, suggested that the pipeline was probably very near, if not surface level.
1: Okay. So the spill leaked into Horse Creek, which flows into Fork Deer River, and ultimately the Memphis Sand Aquifer, which is our state's largest. What stopped it from reaching that aquifer?
2: Uh, that's another great question. Um, I, the response team from emergency response the response time rather from the emergency response team definitely is a factor, and I do think that the current drought was also a factor. Uh, Chester County is currently in severe drought based on the latest U.S. Drought Monitor, and so that means the creek level was lower. Mm. and when it's also hot and the levels are lower, that also means the water is more stagnant. So I think that certainly we can infer that that probably, you know, kept the oil in place versus if there were saturated conditions.
1: Okay, so let me get this straight. This oil spill would have been much worse if we weren't in a severe drought. That's pretty grim. Wow.
2: It's hard to say for sure what would have happened, but from what we can infer it's it would have been worse if we weren't in a drought,
1: uh, still, that was a it's been very a very close call. I mean, yes, what would fallout have been if it did contaminate the aquifer?
2: That's something I'm trying to figure out right now. I'm more familiar with karst hydrology when there's you know an underground limestone network where it's very connected. I covered a gasoline spill in Bowling Green, Kentucky in that environment. and, when you have a spill there, it's so connected, it's, it's really hard to contain. The Memphis Sand Aquifer is sands, so it's very porous, which is why contamination can get into the aquifer so easily. I'm not sure as familiar with the connectivity of that aquifer, mm. so it's hard for me to say, based on my knowledge, how, how bad that would have been. But when you contaminate an aquifer, I can say that it is very hard to clean an aquifer.
1: So I understand that there was no public notice of this spill, is that right?
2: From what I've been told, there was no public notice, and there have not been any contact water advisories at this time. So how did you find the story? So a uh, pipeline safety watchdog organization um, that I met earlier this year while doing other pipeline coverage uh, reached out to me and let me know what was happening.
1: So after you, what did you do next?
2: Next after what?
1: <laughs> after after they let you know what was happening, where, where'd you go?
2: Um, well, I started going through the federal databases.
1: So after you started prodding, what, what details did you uncover about what happened and how the incident was handled by the authorities?
2: Um, well, most of what I found I put in my stories. But as I was uh, sifting through it some more yesterday, I found a few more details. Um, the damages are currently estimated at $50,000. Uh, which seems a little early to give an estimate on damages, but um, that's what it lists right now. It also lists media interest ranked as low, uh, which Mm. I found interesting.
1: Mm. Very interesting. So what does the cleanup look like at this point in Horse Creek?
2: Uh, I'm not sure, as I haven't been to the site myself, but uh, from some photos I've seen, it looks like a lot of trucks from a lot of different federal and state agencies um, they set up buoys in the creek to capture the oil because oil does float on water. Um, and they uh, dammed the creek to prevent it from going into the Forcadere River.
1: So how long does this process normally take for cleanup like this?
2: Uh, I think it, it really depends on the factors. And like I said, the, the drought must have played a big role in um, being able to contain this quickly. It sounds like they're going to be wrapping up in a few days, potentially.
1: Now, this bill comes at an interesting time. Governor Bill Lee just signed a bill into law that essentially limits local input on pipelines. I'm curious, what has Lee said about all of
2: this? Uh, Lee, when I spoke to him, deferred to the state environmental agency.
1: Okay. What'd they tell you?
2: Um, They told me that they are monitoring water quality um, and... They have confirmed the details that I found in the National Databases.
1: Okay. So, you know, put this into context for us. As we said, the spill narrowly avoided the aquifer. But even still, if an oil spill of this magnitude surely has an effect on our ecosystem, what are we looking at? What are we at that area around Horse Creek?
2: I think they're going to be looking at soil contamination. That's going to be a big concern right now. Um how the oil impacted the wildlife in the creek and surrounding area will be important to look at. Uh, We are very fortunate that it was contained to such a small area, Um, but I think that information will be coming out in the next few weeks.
1: I know you're going to be following this closely. What are you going to keep an eye out for as this story develops?
2: Uh, Well, that is my very next question. I want to know, like, what were the habitat impacts? Um, From what I've been told, it's— you know they they keep saying it's well contained it's it's not as bad as it could have been um so I just want to follow up and and see uh, where where we are with that
1: that is WPLN environmental reporter Caroline Eggers check out her coverage of Tennessee's second largest oil spill at wpln.org thank you Caroline have thank- a great weekend
2: <laughs> thank you you too
1: We have to take a short break. Get your tumblers ready, because when we come back, we're talking moonshine. How did Prohibition make way for the rise of this notoriously harsh, strong liquor here in Tennessee? We want to hear your wildest stories about moonshine, so tweet us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I've tried moonshine only once in my life. Back in college, a fraternity brother of mine came back from a weekend visiting his family with a large mason jar filled to the brim with clear liquor. It was his uncle's special moonshine. Now, I heard stories about this legendary booze growing up. My grandparents recounted tales of drinking corn whiskey in their youth. So naturally, I was excited to try it. My frat brother poured a small amount in a Dixie cup and handed it to me with what I call a very sly smile. I'm getting ready to take a sip and I'm thinking to myself, am I going to go blind drinking this? Okay, so I didn't lose my sight, but man, that stuff was strong. Too strong, even for me. Before we get into what exactly Moonshine is, let's dig into the time period that ushered in its prominence, the prohibition era. Here here to help us with that is Sarah Arntz. She is the program coordinator at Metro Archives for the Public Library. Sarah, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, and thanks
3: for having me
1: on. A pleasure to have you with us. So, you know, I understand you conducted some research on prohibition in Nashville. What led you to that?
3: Uh, yeah. So a couple of years ago when we were approaching the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment um, that gave women the right to vote, um, I realized the 18th Amendment uh, was right on its heels pretty much or beforehand, really, of uh, uh, with its 100th anniversary. So I thought, you know, I'll do a blog post about it for the library and down the rabbit hole I went.
1: Now, Tennessee was the first state to pass a prohibition law in 1838. That's long before the national nationwide constitutional ban on producing and selling alcohol. That seems pretty significant. What was the environment like back then? Like, What led to that?
3: Uh, well, yeah, I guess what led to that was uh, the temperance movement uh, in the South was pretty strong, especially in Nashville. They had definitely a lot of supporters, uh, a lot of them being women, but, um, because there was a a pretty big support with that campaign, which wasn't necessarily a total prohibition of alcohol. It was actually just a a limitation of it. So that was kind of primarily the, the cause for that.
1: What was what were the terms of the limitation? Could I have it at my house or did I have to go to specific places to consume alcohol if I was around back in 1838?
3: think you could have it in your house um i didn't dig too far into the research on that law but i believe i guess its term its terms was that it was a, mis- a misdemeanor to sell alcoholic beverages in taverns and stores
1: okay now how did the public react to this ban
3: no that's a good question um <laughs> it was probably a mixed bag i think Maybe because there was a pretty good support for the temperance movement. I think a lot of people were okay with that. But, you know, at the same time, Nashville has always kind of had a a past of being pretty rowdy. So I would imagine there were a lot of people that just totally ignored it, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I could imagine. Now, Mm -hmm. here in Nashville, there was the Carmack murder case in 1908, Mm -hmm. which had a huge Mm -hmm. impact on the state. First, tell me, who was Edward Carmack?
3: Uh, he was an in- interesting character at best. Uh, he was um, a former senator, uh, I believe U.S. senator, and before that his roots were in journalism. Um, I think he wrote for the Memphis Appeal where he had a pretty big uh, rivalry with Ida B. Wells, I believe, and then after that he spent time in Nashville, um, and I guess after he was not reelected to be senator, he went back to being an editor of the Tennessean, and that's where he He would write these, you know, antagonistic articles just uh, because he was, of course, you know, a staunch prohibitionist. So Mm -hmm. he would rile people up up pretty easily.
1: And so what happened next?
3: So I think what happened prior to his murder is he started sort of a a written rivalry with his former uh, mentor, Duncan Cooper, I believe. Um, which I forget which newspaper he wrote for. But he, Duncan Cooper, was, of course, a supporter of the wet or he was an anti-prohibitionist. So they um, I believe it was sort of happenstance what happened. They were both out walking. Duncan Cooper was with his son, Robin, at the time, and they managed to walk near each other where there were, I believe, um, that time frame may have been the Polk apartments. It was where the former president Volcombe was at seven. And, the union. and uh, I guess they met each other. And then one person was quicker with the draw over the other one.
1: <laughs> wow. it was a shootout on on Seventh Avenue. Yep. OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at, yep. the Tennessean at the time wrote that this was an assassination sponsored by pro alcohol and saloon interests. Mm-hmm. Was that proven to be true?
3: You know that's a great question. (laughs) Well, I mean, whether it was or not, I suppose it—he became sort of a martyr to the cause. So that's the reason why. Then in 1909, I believe that the city of Nashville passed a a prohibition law that I think limited the sale of alcohols within the distance of schools and other buildings.
1: Okay, so prohibition Mm -hmm. was in effect in some form or another in Tennessee for a Mm -hmm. long time, and in Nashville. But we Mm -hmm. we know that people were still drinking. Mm-hmm. What kind of records have you come across that show people how they were getting around the laws?
3: Oh, my. Um, so yeah, that's a good question too. We recently had a pretty big project that we had our volunteers here at the archives help us with, which was um, indexing our criminal court case files from Davidson County. and they went through, you know case by case, got them um, indexed for us, some of them even scanned. and, when we kind of did an audit of what we had, we found that their majority of the things people were going to criminal court for were for tippling, which was alcohol related, was, you know, drunken disorderly uh, you name it. So I think like with the, um, I believe there was an exposition um, Nashville exposition in 1880, where they did end up selling alcohol then because people just, they just wanted it. So whether there was a law or not, people were just like, you know what, I don't really care.
1: <laughs> did you find anything that shocked you?
3: You know, I wish I could say I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, and I'm hoping to do a little bit more research with those criminal court case files coming up with a new blog post. So, you know, there's still hope that there's going to be something that will shock me. <laughs> mm
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Kalona. We're talking about moonshine and how Prohibition helped this famous spirit grow in popularity. Now, I'd like to bring in my next guests. Billy Kaufman runs Short Mountain Distillery, and Ricky Estes is a fourth-generation Cannon County moonshiner. Wow. Billy and Ricky, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us. So, Billy, explain for us, what is is moonshine like what is it made of?
0: Um, well, it, it really depends who you ask. Uh, you know, according to the federal government, moonshine is a fanciful word that has no meaning. Uh, you know, the dictionary says that moonshine is an illegally made spirit, and uh, places like Cannon County, where Short Mountain is, moonshine is a very specific thing. You know, when we started uh, our distillery, we had three moonshiners, all very established in the county. They worked independently of each other, and they all made the same exact recipe of moonshine. But you will not find that in other places.
1: Now, so what sets Cannon County moonshine apart?
0: Uh, Well, Ricky will probably say it's the best um, moonshine in the world, Mm -hmm. and uh, I might agree with him. Uh, you know, Dave Macon used to sing about the uh, the Cannon County Hills, you know, and uh, he was praising uh, the Cannon County moonshine. I think r- really it's a it's a has a geological origin that Short Mountain is the source of uh, three different watersheds for surrounding counties. And we have thousands of springs around Short Mountain. So it's just uh Physically, it's the ideal place for making moonshine. You need a, a clear, cool uh, spring with the uh, limestone-filtered, clean water to to make good moonshine. So if I and, have, and that's really what it did. That's what it was.
1: So if I have those, I can make it out of any ingredient. You're saying?
0: I think you can. All right. Well, here, this is an interesting story. So in Cannon County, uh, they have. Two moonshine recipes. One is the sugar shine, which is mostly sugar and corn. And then there's also the corn liquor recipe, which is uh when you, when sugar's not available, like when when you just can't afford it or you, you have a lot of corn. Uh, and those are the two recipes that I've come across historically. But if you wanted to make, let's let, let, let me just put it this way: everywhere on the planet, they are making illegal we made spirits and mm-hmm. you can make alcohol from anything with sugar and, and, uh, carb carbohydrates and anything that yeast will
1: consume. You can make liquor. Okay. So Ricky, what, yes. what is the strangest thing you've made moonshine with?
4: Well, I never did do, it but one way I just always did it with my my grandpa, my daddy recipe. And I, I use, uh, Start off with my I never know my daddy make on nothing but a one bar outfit. And that's a, that's what you call a 50 gallon bar with a 40-gallon pot. Okay. And uh, he, we would start off with 50 gallon am um, 50 pound of sugar, 20 to 25 pounds of corn meal, and some yeast, cooking yeast, any kind of yeast that do cooking we work, and capping. And the capping is more or less, you, you got to have it in the wintertime to make a cap to hold the heat in. Yeah. And we always use uh, wheat shorts. And yeah. years ago, people fed it to the hogs, too, you know. So. Okay.
1: Okay. Sarah, question for you Have you ever tried moonshine?
3: Um, I'm not going to say I haven't. <laughs> <laughs>
1: back in college. I understand. I understand. Mm -hmm. So Billy, tell us, how did you get into the distillery business?
0: Well, uh, about 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I bought a property here. And unbeknownst to me, it was uh, the ancestral home of, of probably Cannon County's most Famous moonshiner Cooper Melton. And he uh he actually was one of Al Capone's moonshiners. And I I I had no idea at the time, but it was something I learned over time. It the this property is the uh the headwaters of Dry Creek, so it has lots of nice springs on it. And uh I I was mainly just interested in agriculture and the the gentleman that I would work with um, in agriculture we're all doing a side jobs of making moonshine so like Ricky you know he worked for bunny bread but he also made moonshine on the side and uh the Ronald Lawson he uh drove t- trucks and farmed but he made m- moonshine on the side and uh, there, there's no there, there's no money in uh agriculture out here per se but there is a little bit of money in moonshine and, and so I would uh take g- like a gallon of moonshine uh from Short Mountain and I could put it in a jar and uh take it to auction somewhere where like a New Yorker or someone from LA would would pay a hundred bucks for it. Mm. And that sort of put the idea in my head. I al- I almost did it illegally, but then I sort of figured out a path to uh do it, do it legally
1: here in Cannon County. Making your moonshine legit. I get that. Now yeah. Tell me a little bit more about this Al, P- Al Capone connection. That sounds rather intriguing.
0: Okay, so uh, Cooper Melton, he was a legal moonshiner uh, before Prohibition. I mean, a, a legal distiller, I'm sorry. Yeah, And he. there were lots of legal distilleries in Tennessee. Uh, I think we had 18 in Cannon County before Prohibition. And uh, distilleries were part of like, an agricultural framework where everyone could farm and make it uh, as much uh, fruit, they could grow as much fruit or grain as they wanted and turn it into alcohol and not have to worry about it rotting. And the byproduct like Ricky said of making alcohol is animal feed. So uh, the wheat shorts, the spent mash, you could feed that to your cows and your hogs, your chickens, ducks, whatever. And you have animal feed, and animals make manure, so that's a uh, um, part of the, you know, the, the missing link of of organic farming. Mm-hmm. Is you know you have this whole complete system. So anyway, uh, Cooper Melton, he uh, he inherited uh, when when the prohibition came, he inherited all this humongous equipment from this distillery, and he hid it out here in the woods. And he, he became uh, sort of a a character during Tennessee's prohibition because he didn't not make a lot of money. He just had a lot of children. And uh, they wouldn't arrest him because he had 20 kids and they would have to open an orphanage. 20 if, kids. Uh, if, 20 yeah. kids. Okay. Well, that's important because he had to have a big workforce to run that big equipment. And he put them all to work. And uh, when uh, prohibition hit National, the national level, he was in the right place at the right time with the right workforce and this giant equipment, and he garnered the attention of Capone, and he was able to put all that giant equipment, uh, five hundred gallon moonshine still, to work. And uh, and you can actually, there's an episode of uh, how booze built America. Mike Rowe did it, and um, they they reenact the meeting of Capone's men. And uh, Cooper Melton's hillbilly clan, you know, coming together and figuring out how to make a profit. He became the the richest guy on short mountain. The first guy with the car, first guy, to have electricity. And uh, that was a big deal back then.
4: Wow. Wow. Now. That's true. What I always hear from my mom and daddy and my uh, grandpa and them, that Cooper mountain with a big moonshiner and, they even had some of my kin folk there, my uncle, my daddy, and my grandpa, they would help Cooper a mountain, make sure they had enough of moonshine to make it up when Al Capone come food to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And,
0: yeah. The the recipe that Ricky that Ricky makes is uh um linked to that time when everyone was making a commodity for these uh for Capone. So Capone. Uh, would pick up a high proof moonshine and then take it back to wherever he was going to do take it at, at a high proof and then turn it into different things and that's sort of how we have uh, what what we have today like moonshine is just an ingredient for a, a billion cocktails you put any flavor you want in moonshine it'll take on that flavor the way you drank it when you were a kid is not really the way to drink moonshine moonshine is an ingredient for a cocktail you can turn it into gin or something tastes like whiskey or i mean look look what the tourist distilleries are doing in gatlinburg and they they have every color under under the sun as a moonshine flavor. Yeah, I quickly
1: learned the way I tried it was not the way to consume moonshine. Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. Yeah. Won't yeah. do that again. Sarah. I have to
3: agree. Yeah, <laughs> I have okay. To agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: We're, I feel you. Now, Sarah, did you find any documentation about mob activities in Nashville during Prohibition?
3: Ooh, um, you know, I didn't. It was my coworker that actually she uh, she dove a little bit more into the content of our our case files, but um I also, you know, regularly scour the newspapers on a daily basis. So, um there's still hope to find something interesting.
1: Where can people learn more about prohibition in Nashville?
3: Uh if they come down and visit us, we'll be happy to to show them some of the early uh City of Nashville law books that kind of outline, you know, the the strict nature of the laws here. Um, Newspapers, of course, we can always show them. My blog posts, I'll throw throw in for that. And um, yeah, the criminal court case files are open to the public too. And we've got them identified as, you know, what type of charge it would be. So uh, yeah, we're always happy to talk about it.
1: Sarah Arntz is the program direct coordinator at the Metro Archive. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about moonshine and get some wild stories about what it took back in the day to produce it. You know, I feel in one way or another, we all have some kind of bizarre connection to moonshine. So tweet us your stories at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A Colonna, and this is Nashville. White Lightning, Firewater, Mountain Dew. These are a few of the nicknames moonshine has earned over the years. Before the break, we were going back in time to better understand the environment in Tennessee that fostered its rise in prominence. Now we'll explore the culture of it with a few folks who make it. Still with me are Billy Kaufman, owner of Short Mountain Distillery, and Ricky Estes, a fourth-generation Cannon County moonshiner. So, Ricky, you mentioned that you you know, you know, grew up learning how to make moonshine. But tell me, I want to know, like when your dad, the first time you learned how, when your dad took you out, what did he say to you about how to make moonshine and what you were doing?
4: Well, he'd always say... My daddy always had a good name to have the, the best moonshine. Maybe, you know, not the, the very better than anybody else, but everybody thought he was better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So everybody had to make it and they had to sell it. And daddy always said that you can't make it light. Don't make it at all. And you talk about, you know, what killed people years ago. Was people would try anything to make a a gallon of moonshine and they would use a a drum, a 55 gallon drum. And they, what really killed so many people, people didn't have the money to buy an outfit and they would run it through a radiator, a car radiator. And that's where you get your red part in that that kill people. Oh, wow. Uh, My daddy always talked up boys to make the best, whatever you do. If you don't have patience, don't make moonshine. So that means you need to run moonshine in a copper pot. Always have a fumper, which you got a steam line going from your cap over to the fumper. And then you got another reed line going from the fumper to the condenser that condensed the cold water. That bar would be full of cold water. And when the steam hit it, it would produce it in the alcohol.
1: So. And- I'm sorry. Can you t- keep on going. I know you're giving us the steps. I want to, I want you to finish.
4: Okay. So that's what a lot of people never did know that how a lot of people know how to do it. They didn't want to do it the right way. Uh, they wanted a lot of people you uh, try to do it without a bumper. Well, when you do that, when you send in the steam from the pot up the cap and over to the condenser, you don't. What you're doing, you lose, you caution costing your own self money on account of you, the, the water is heavy and alcohol, and that pumper will catch the sweat on the alcohol and drop it down in the pumper uh, and you're sending pure moonshine over to condense food when it hit the con- condenser, and okay. you're going to come out with a high proof. You're going to come out with a 100 and maybe 60 proof and if you don't have a plumper to sweat the water off in, you come out with maybe 130, which ain't gonna make near as good moonshine and at, uh, near, uh, enough off it evil to pay for your cough.
1: So patience is the key when making moonshine, noted. Tell me, how old were you when you first learned how to make it?
4: Well, I'm a young boy out of four, and they said I was eight years old when I started going to the still. And I've been at it i'm thirty four year old now, and I've been at it all my life it's something I don't want to let go i guess
1: mm-hmm.
4: moonshine is a lot of good thing in moonshine people a lot of people don't know that that year ago when people would get sick, almost faint would faint out but overheat, they made counsel and counsel is uh you take a the trauma moonshine you got with the uh, pure alcohol, and you can buy camphor camp pills, and you put it down in a half a pint bottle and drop a pill in there, and you get sort of fainty or sick at your stomach. You get smell off it, hey, you all right. Now you run to the doctor, you know. Mm-hmm. But then that camphor would take care of you sick and you fainting pale, headache. My aunt, she believed in it so bad, about years back that she told my brother, that she had to have some camphor that she had run out for her husband had died, which was my uncle. And he went to an old store, a drug store somewhere out here at Smithville and found some camphor peel, and made her some camphor And she put it and get the rag real hot and pour it on it, put it on her head, and the headache would go away. So a lot of good things about moonshine.
1: Medicinal purposes as well. So and tell me, as you were growing up making moonshine, I got to ask, did you have any run-ins with the law?
4: Oh, I did, I did. Several times, uh, I, would, uh, I had to I, uh, uh, try to make my moonshine when I, with my own b- work buyer, Man, my brother. He was 13 and I was eleven. And my older brother, they was about 12 years, seven years older than we was, or me. And uh, we would have to go to the wood and cut wood, you know, to carry to the steel. And my daddy finally told us, you boy can have a a bar, a, a moonshine you can make right here with us." So I bought me a car when I was eleven years old, and uh, I swapped it to a guy. He was on the store that we bought sugar fund and meal and took. And uh, he had a pattern truck that go up on the front, uh, to the house and see roast out of the uh, out of the truck, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he had money. He and he sold me a car on a credit. Uh, four, and give me four dollar gallon for my moonshine. And then I, he bought me another car about a year later off his brother, and he'd give me a five dollar gallon for my moonshine. And I give $40, uh, for my first car, and he gave me $40 back for it. And then he bought me an old mobile, 52 Oldsmobile Old Mobile off his brother, and give $275, and then he I he'd give me $5 a gallon for my moonshine. And that'd be my life. It rolled up like that there. And time I was 14 years old, I was running from the law. I might have been 15, my daddy drove school bus, and he come. Uh, uh, when we got off the bus, it all went with a job. We never did get to enjoy life. I mean, we enjoyed life. We all had public jobs, uh-huh. and we come in and make moonshine at nighttime. And uh, they chased me that night, running out from the field. About, I'm uh, 14, 15 years old, but they, my brother had went back to the house to get the jug, and he they come in on me before we got back, and he said he counted the shot. Seven times they shot, but I don't know whether it was more out shooting up in the air, and more than that wasn't shooting at me, but I didn't know that. And they didn't catch me either. So I stayed lost in the woods about all night, pretty well 400 acres of wood there, and took, stayed lost several hours in them wood before I ever come out, you know. That sounds, but,
1: uh, like, that sounds like a really, really close call. Now Now, Billy, tell me, how did you first learn about moonshine?
0: hmm I mean I when I moved I moved to Tennessee about 20 years ago and uh i I moved to Cannon County and it, it's just all over here when I moved here it was a dry county and moonshine was still in uh production uh pretty commonly uh everyone would uh make moonshine put it in a one gallon milk jug, a plastic milk jug, and you could buy it for $30. Hmm.
1: And
0: uh, it, it, you could just, there, there were places you can go and just pull up and buy it. And then people would do a little value added uh, uh, spin on it and make apple pie and something called spring water. And that was common
1: when I moved here. It was but, a, uh, a dry, so it's a dry county, but everyone's making was- and selling moonshine.
0: Yeah, I mean that's what sort of kept moonshine alive. I think in in some some of these rural areas uh, was the fact that you know a lot of the counties never came out of prohibition. But when I came here uh, and I wanted to start the distillery, I started a referendum in in Cannon County to overturn the manufacturing law. To one aspect of the the liquor laws that, that you know to so to make it. Legal for the manufa- the legal manufacturing of spirits in Cannon County, and the people voted on it in an election, and and they overturned the law. And uh, you know, when the distillery opened, they saw what we were doing—that we were really uh, teaching people about the culture here. And um, it wasn't a, a a den of sin or anything like that. It was a tourist attraction. It, it was a, a nice restaurant. It, we were doing positive things for the county. Um, I think uh, they saw that it was a good thing. And, th- and then, uh, little by little, all the other liquor laws got overturned. And now it's it, we're as, what, as wet as any other
1: county, too. Mm-hmm. So when you got your operation started, how many moonshiners did you have working?
0: Uh, we had three. Uh, Ronald Lawson, who, who lives up the road. Jimmy Simpson, who uh, he's in the neighborhood. And, and old Ricky here. He's sitting next to me, and uh, yeah, th- and like I said, you know, I, I, they all made the same thing, and uh, it was interesting. I, I think I thought when we started that they would all make something different, and I would have a, three different products with each moonshiner on it, but they all had the same uh, sugar shine recipe. And uh, y'all didn't really even get along when we started and they were a little cantankerous. with other. Well, I
4: man, no, we were making when we come up here. I know it was I mean we've been making together. I know.
0: They, yeah. the, the state had them sign a contract saying, Oh yeah, y'all were making together. Yeah. So the state so, so the state uh uh they hadn't always, but they did were then. The state had them sign a contract st- saying that they wouldn't make a legal spirit anymore. But I thought that was so funny to, to have a moonshiner
1: sign a contract saying that they wouldn't make moonshine, moonshine illegally. It's about it's all about the moonshiners' honor. Now
4: I didn't know I didn't know what I was saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they duped you. They pulled a fast one on you. But Ricky, tell me, how competitive is it? If you say, you know, Billy, really you're saying that they didn't really get along. How competitive is the moonshine scene out in Cannon County?
4: Well, uh, with me and Ronald Walsh, we were making together when we signed it. When we immediately had talked talker and open to come up here to help him. And uh, Jimmy Simpson, I don't know what he was doing at the time, but he was a moonshiner too. But he uh, was a big fan back years ago for uh, people. They had to make a ribbon. They had to feed the kids. And they would do some stupid thing to like to my, my, my daddy. You know, uh, my daddy was a sharecropper, And uh, you all may not know what that was. And, but that's how you have to go to the, uh, somebody and live on their plate and and, and do the farming, you know, and giving them some of the whatever you made, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now you talk about uh, riskers, right, you drunk back in your days and everything, even me, myself. Uh, but we made good high riskers, and I seen my uncle would come and, take, you know, come over a little high up there, and uh, we were real poor, real poor, but we had to draw water out of the well. But we make sipping sip liquor. That's what I call good moonshine. And how they would, they would drink it all day and never get drunk. And, uh, you know, if I go out and party, I'm gonna get drunk in 15, 20 minutes, you know, uh, get high, and uh, they wouldn't do that. They would, uh, uh, my daddy first friend, he'd do go on there and get a half a gallon of liquor out on the bay, and we put it in half a gallon jug back then, most can. And, uh, he would draw a bucket with water out of the well and have good cold water. And they sit down, they take a drink of moonshine and they have a sip of water. And they would go to the field, take the old mule and go to the field and hoe out corn on them hillside all day long mm. with a jug of water and a half a gallon of moonshine or a gallon of moonshine, never come home sober. They wouldn't be drunk, you know. Wow. So, how people drunk it back then, like what Betty said, they make fa- people make favor down, you know, make something out of it and kill the alcohol down. I mean, well, it, they would drink great alcohol and shit. It would been water, you
0: know. They have a saying here in Cannon County. If it wasn't for white oak baskets, which could be another episode, white oak baskets and moonshine, we all would have starved to death. Because it was, for, for a while, it was a, a, a great way to secure an income when farming wasn't always reliable.
1: Okay. We got a tweet from Kimalee. She says, I grew up in Bellevue and other locations of the moonshiners were well known. Some have houses on them now, but some were remote enough. They may still be there. Billy, does that ring true from what you know about moonshine culture here?
0: Yeah, they're all still here. <laughs> I think they they like now that the distillery is here because they're all, uh, the, the, the price of moonshine when I moved here was $30 a gallon for illegal moonshine, and it's a lot higher now. $60 gallons, gallon.
4: <laughs> yeah, it
1: doubled. $60 a gallon. Wow. So
4: you you lucky to find it for that.
1: Yeah, and you can't hardly find it though. Okay. Moonshine, you know, it only became legal to manufacture here in the last decade, but. Unlike beer and wine, it's still illegal without a proper license. Now, Billy, you operate a legal distillery making a variety of spirits, but you don't make moonshine exactly, right?
0: No, I do. I I make the same. Uh, I have the sugar shine and pure corn moonshine. I even have like an organic version of moonshine with certified organic corn that that's, uh, you know, like the corn liquor. But uh, but it it is sort of a what what is that uh, an oxymoron you know you can't make legal moonshine the word means an illegally made spirit mm-hmm. and uh so we we call it moonshine but uh really it's it's something it it is whatever it you know whatever you're making so you can call uh my corn corn moonshine corn liquor and you can call uh you know, I don't know what you would call the sugar shine if if you wanted to change the name, but it's like sugar. I don't know. I don't know would
4: I never. Yeah. I, my daddy made some uh, pure corn ricker, but I never did get involved in it. I had to help with it. Uh, we take the corn back them days and uh, take a feet, a hundred pound bag and then put fifty pound corn in it, and we would bury it in the manure, cover it up with a rubber sheet. And every morning we had to hot, heat hot water and carry and pour on it and ready it plow. Out through the sack, yeah, and then he would take it, and put it in the bar, and 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 hit start off, and he would run it, and it made about half what it should've. Uh, most uh, a bar ricker should've made five to six gallons. It maybe make three gallons, yeah. but now it was some something else. It was uh, we had a guy. He was a boot and he made my daddy do it every year. We didn't make him do it, but daddy would help to ball money off of him to put out the backer pack and put out the corn trough, and he would tell my daddy he said, "I'm will." you know what you got to do and daddy knows what he had to do he had to make him some drinking moonshine out of pure corn and uh he said that is bob moonshine and nobody else getting none of that he make about three gallons and he sip on it all year so yeah. every year we can do it every year
0: yeah so what what ricky's talking about is they made their own malt and uh with the we don't we 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 get our malts from a malt house but um yeah the sprouted grain has the enzymes in it that help with the fermentation. So although in Cannon County they don't say fermentation, they
1: say rotten. Okay. <laughs> the rottening of it. Now, Billy, tell me, do, do you serve cocktails with moonshine?
0: Oh yeah, we, we make great cocktails. We do moonshine margaritas and bloody marys on Sundays. And uh we have a we actually have a, a mixology class where we where we teach sort of the the theory of how to make cocktails with moonshine it's a great mixer it's i think it's better than vodka tequila gin and and it's actually the all-american mixer because all those other uh spirits come from somewhere else but um moonshine is the all-american mixer and you can make all those different drinks with moonshine you can make a martini
1: with moonshine Oh, might have to try that. Brad Lewis tweeted us at This Is Nashville. He says, I've been soaking Carolina Reapers for three years in moonshine made here in Nashville. I've been afraid to take a shot. He asks, Wanna have a drink, Khalil? You know what? I might take you up on that, Brad. I can tell you this, Andrea, our executive producer, is totally down. She is not afraid. Um Ricky. How do you feel about these modern-day spins on moonshine? Like, do you feel it's gotten too fancy or mainstream?
4: Well, I'd say i say I've never had no education. I uh, work in paper when i 15 and work all my life. And I don't understand a lot of fame about fame, but yeah, it had rolled out of my hand by a long shot, you know. I would still like right to do the old corn and uh, moon, uh, sugar moonshine, you know. But it's so much out here I never would have thought. I even helped Biddy to help get it all the paper signs where he can go rigorize And I thought that I, I told people, I said, that bird there won't never get out of the ground. You know, I didn't ever think it would happen, you know. Mm-hmm. But it did. And I've seen a lot in my days, uh, how moonshine started off and what it is today. And I've been through a lot. Uh, by the law i've been caught twice by the tbi when i was 18 years old and uh uh and my brother got one of my brother got caught with me and uh he went he got more than i did he got more time he wanted to get hit over with he walked in this school factory and then i went to the war uh the in and didn't go and put mine off and got hoped some people that would help me and got out i didn't have to be on no time in jail they on not basin and uh paid a big old fine, you know. That's but what got me was a quick attack. I didn't pay my quick attack. It wasn't but $900 and when I was 18 and I got married and didn't pay it till 24 years old and it cost me $4,300 then. So I should have paid it like my brother did. But I've seen a lot. I've been, I've been chased by the law many, many times. We got a book out that me, I in it and my founders is in it uh, where the law chased through Auburn Town with a, Steel when we got we we bought it from Safer, Tennessee. And know, uh, my brother, my daddy both was in the car with me, and I wasn't about fourteen, fifteen. And my other brother, he had a big old car and he had one part of the outfit with him. So So
1: let me ask you this, Ricky.
4: Really let me I, uh,
1: let me ask you this, Ricky. You have this this legacy of moonshine in your family. This technique was passed down to you. You happen to have sons. Have you taught them how to make moonshine?
4: no i haven't uh matter of fact uh, i got bowed, i got brought up with my steel in 1992 uh well in 91 and 92 about that three day before christian and uh my boys were smart enough to go get the steel out of the bone and uh i'll in a bone center for 17 days down there and take off work for, for a year but no i never did teach my boys how to make moonshine because i didn't want them Go through what I've been through, mm-hmm. but now they do have an outfit of peace. I made sure they have had an outfit of peace. And uh, I teach some of my young cousin how to make it, and told them if them boys ever asked them to run them how to make it, they said they would. You know, yeah. But they don't really need it. They they done good for themselves and I the proud of them. That's right. And, uh, they really don't need the money for moonshine.
1: That's right. But just in case, they can keep the sugar shine recipe in the family. Can do it. That's right. I want to thank Bye. my guests so much Ricky Estes, fourth generation Camp, Camp Cannon County moonshiner, and Billy Kaufman, owner of Short Mountain Distillery. Ricky and Billy, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for sharing your stories with us today. I really appreciate it, fellas. We want to thank any everyone who tuned in this hour. Join us on Monday for an episode all about city sidewalks, or lack thereof. How many folks are getting around by foot, and what is the city doing to improve walkability? This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Shernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Mr. Tony Gonzalez. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at this is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you on Monday, everybody, and be good to each other.